0: So I have to have some grace for this individual. Just like Paul says, look, I was the worst of all sinners, but Jesus showed me grace. He showed me mercy. And I think we have to have that attitude with people. We ought not expect them to agree with us all the time. And if we have that attitude, then we can say, "Okay, I can see your point. But let me let me express to you what I think is the truth.
1: Man, that is so right. I have used that analogy over and over again. That's Frank Turek. He has so much insight into how we can reach across many of the barriers that keep people from Jesus. Uh, we're going to talk about several key issues for modern Christians during today's episode a Refocus with Jim Daly. Frank has a lot to say about Christian political perspectives and talking to people who disagree with the Christian worldview. Have you ever been told you're hateful because of your Christian beliefs? The culture has made that lie very common. Uh, Today's guests will unpack that concept and how we can answer those attacks as Christians and remain uh, in the fruit of the Spirit, which is the goal. I'm so glad that you decided to listen to today's episode of Refocus. Uh, These conversations are meant to give you the information you need to engage our culture and spread God's grace and love and truth to people who haven't experienced it before or who have experienced something else. Uh, We're going to be talking about the practical evidence for believing in God and then how to share about Jesus, the reality of Jesus, the truth of Jesus with others. Frank Turek is the president of crossexamine.org. He presents evidence for Christianity at churches, high schools. That's great and uh, secular college campuses. And he also has debated several prominent atheists. And if you think of a question for me while you're listening, click the link in the show notes to send me a voicemail. I answer a question at the end of every episode, and I'd love to hear from you. Frank has a book called Stealing from God, Why Atheists Need God to Make Their Case. We'll be covering that and much more in our conversation today on Refocus with Jim Daly. Frank, it is so good to speak with you. Welcome to the program.
0: Jim, great being with you. Thanks for having me on.
1: You know, I'm really intrigued. This is probably not where you thought I was going to go, but I love the idea that you were a naval flight officer and you, you know, that backseat weapons specialist. What do you think spiritually you learned in that context as you're flying, you know, with your pilot and you're running all the weapons in the backseat? What is that experience like? Well, one of the things that... It came pretty hard
0: on me as we were over in Saudi Arabia during the Iran-Iraq War, just the end of the Iran-Iraq War, just before Saddam went into Kuwait. So this is going back to like 1988, 1989. And uh, we were flying uh, a P-3, which was a a, a patrol plane. We'd fly very low over the Persian Gulf, uh, sometimes as low as 200 feet. And we were just doing patrols. And the thing that struck me was mortality, because at that point, we were always worried that some Iranian was going to take us down with a, a surface-to-air missile from a little a bog hammer boat or a little Dow that yeah. was on the uh, Persian Gulf. So I was always thinking, hey, this could be my last day, right? Now, thankfully, we never knew we got shot at anyway, but we were always ready for that. And uh, when you go into a war zone, whether or not you're shot at, you're still thinking, You know, my mortality is hanging on a thread here. It could happen at any minute.
1: You know, that's so close to the old adage that there's no atheists in foxholes. (laughs) I mean, I I can't believe it leans into the content the way that does. But, you know, even that descriptor, talk about that, because you've spent now your second part of your life as an apologist for the Lord debating Christopher Hitchens and other notable atheists. Have you gotten a feel for how they could be in that foxhole pending death, and they still don't come to realization of Jesus? I
0: think so much of it, Jim, is volitional. It's not intellectual. This is why I like to ask people who are not Christians, if Christianity were true, would you become a Christian? And Jim, we do a lot of this on college campuses, and when I have an atheist at the microphone, if I ask them that question, if Christianity were true, would you become a Christian, the honest ones will say no.
1: That's shocking.
0: Oh, of course it's shocking. They claim to be beacons of reason, but then you ask them if something were true, you wouldn't believe it? How is that reasonable? It's not. The (laughs) problem is not a head problem. It's a heart problem. They don't want it to be true.
1: Now, okay, in that deduction of of rationale, you're really thinking they're just so anti-God that even if they were given eternal life, Joy, peace, never sorrow, never tears in heaven. This place of of shalom, God's peace. I mean, this infinite transaction that you uh, give me eternal life and my recognition of my sinful nature and your death for me. That's basically it. And they're saying, "No, I don't." If, even if it were true, I wouldn't want that deal. That sounds yeah, almost uh, idiotic, if I could say it that way. Well, I agree with you. It is. When you really put it the way you put
0: it, people would be crazy to say no. But what they're on is not a truth quest, Jim. They're on a happiness quest. and They're just going to believe whatever they think is going to make them happy here and now. This is a here and now thing. I don't want anybody telling me what to do. In fact, Christopher Hitchens called God a cosmic North Korean dictator peering in on our sex lives, telling us what we can and can't do. And so much of this, Jim, comes down to the issue of sex and personal autonomy. I want to do what I want to do when I want to do it, with whom I want to do it, and no one can tell me I can't. It's really rebellion. It's not, they're not disbelieving God, they're rejecting God,
1: because God is this moral standard. In that context, Frank, it, I mean, there is nothing new under the sun, whether it's patrolling uh, in the Middle East, and you know, fretting about an Iranian surface-to-air missile taking you down, like they are today. I mean, mm-hmm. think of that. That was what in the '90s, the '80s. Yeah, I mean, the the and we're right yeah. back there. I mean, talk about right. nothing new under the sun. And then you look at this: thousands of years where we had the Garden of Eden uh, situation described for us in Genesis, and we're still there, right? Of course, we are. Yeah,
0: we're it, we're, we're fallen creatures who are depraved who need a savior and yet we're resisting the savior because we think some sort of temporal happiness now is going to
1: is is really what our meaning is all about when in reality it's not well we're going to unpack that over the next little while here together mm-hmm. and look at sexuality and all those things but let's start with let's start with more of how we disagree in the culture today because i think people it's it, it there's a couple things a couple of currents that are at play in our culture today uh, kind of this idea of tolerance and if we mm-hmm. express love the way we do that in the culture is we tolerate other people's false views and that says we love you but you kind of have a an issue with that and i would agree with you but what why are we getting that wrong when we think in that that way
0: well because today people think love means approval but love doesn't mean approval just just by reflecting on it I always ask people, you know, if you're a parent and you approve of everything your child wants to do when they're, say, 13, are you a (laughs) loving parent? Of course you're not. Right. You're an enabler. You're not loving them. You're enabling them to do evil. If you love them, you will stand in the way of evil. That's what love does. And by the way, Jim, in the passage that everyone reads at their wedding, but nobody obeys first Corinthians 13, Paul says, love does not rejoice in wrongdoing. Love rejoices in the truth. He says, love always protects how do you protect people? You try and prevent them from doing evil. You don't affirm it. You don't approve of it. You stand in the way of, the, of it. That's what we're supposed to do. That's what love is. Love is seeking what's best for the other person, and that doesn't mean approving everything they do.
1: Well, especially in that area of self-harm, which again, we'll get to, but let, let's describe mm-hmm. the love of Christ. You're touching yes. on it, but what is the love of Christ? What does it look like? In one word, it's sacrifice. Huh?
0: That's, that's what it is, it's sacrifice. Jesus said, I give you one new command, love one another as I have loved you. How did he love us? He sacrificed himself for us. And we have uh, the opposite view in our culture today. We think that love means approving what anybody wants to do. And Thomas Sowell put it well. Thomas Sowell says everything well. The 93-year-old economist put it this way. He said, when you want to help people, you tell them the truth. When you want to help yourself, you tell them what they want to hear.
1: Boy, that's powerful. what do we do?
0: Yeah. What what do we do when we tell people what they want to hear? We're sacrificing them for our benefit, Jim, because what we're saying is I'm not going to tell you the truth because I don't want you mad at me. I don't want to experience any of the blowback you're going to give me. So I'm going to tell you what you want to hear rather than what you need to hear. When we tell people what they need to hear, we're sacrificing ourselves to help them because we're willing to take the blowback. We're willing to say, I love you so much, I'm gonna put up with any consternation you're gonna send my way when I tell you the truth. So if we truly love people, we have to stand in the way of evil
1: as tactfully as we can. You know, it it strikes me like that's a good way to even start that conversation if you're going to get into it with somebody who has, you know, you have deep spiritual disagreement with, a non-believer, let's say. I mean, you look at the community, the abortion community and the LGBT community, Mm -hmm. that's not a bad way to start this. I want to be honest with you. I will sacrifice my relationship to tell you the truth versus telling you what you want to hear, which won't help you at all. That's
0: right. In fact, I think on a personal level, what you can say to someone, say you have somebody in your family who, say, identifies as gay. Let's just say that's the example. And they say, you know, hey, I want you to come to my same-sex wedding, right? What, What can you say to them? I think one of the things you can say to them is, hey, if I were about to go down a road that would be harmful to me and others, would you love me enough to tell me? Hmm. And that person hopefully will say, well, of course, thank you. Would you permit me to do that for you right now? Would you permit me to tell you the truth about what what I think is going to harm you and others if you go down this road? I love you enough to want to, to risk you being mad at me. To
1: tell you the truth, yeah,
0: I'm not gonna I'm not gonna help you by telling you what you want to
1: hear. I mean, if you look at that, that was exactly what Jesus did every day, yes. and I he he did it with such uh, firmness and grace that mm-hmm. we as the church tend to struggle in our humanness and in our sin nature. To get that balance right. You know, so often with us, and I just, you know, the generalization of us, but we tend to work on a switch. I mean, this stuff happens in your marriage all the time, meaning it's either got to be this way or it's got to be that way. And what Jesus did so beautifully was to be able to speak truth with grace. And uh, somehow, I guess the question I've got for you is, why do we struggle as much as we do when we have Jesus as that example with this balance. And it's not, it's, it is is a dimmer switch. It's up and down. It's, you know, you gotta move. You gotta speak to the person that's in front of you. You gotta know where they're coming from. You gotta show some empathy. You gotta say, well, I understand these conflicts that you have, but let me show you what the Word of God says, and this is true. I, yeah, we do, we do struggle with it, and I think that's just part of our sin nature because we
0: feel like we have to be right and sometimes we can't imagine why somebody doesn't agree with us, which I find actually, when you think about it, I, I find that kind of absurd to think that everyone ought to agree with us. Uh, <laughs> I, I do a lot of co- I do a lot of college campus events, and uh, we always set up a microphone for Q and A, uh, and we put all those Q and A's on our YouTube channel, the Cross Examined YouTube channel. A lot of people watch them, and they say, "Hey, Frank, how come you're so patient with these kids? You know, oh, they really? get angry with you, wow. they get mad at you, they'll." And I say to them, why should I expect a 21-year-old kid to agree with my 61-year-old self? I mean, I didn't agree with my 61-year-old self when I was 21.
1: Exactly So why should
0: I expect this? I don't know what his background is. I don't know where he's coming from. I don't know what kind of life experience he's had. I don't know uh, what he's read, what he hasn't read. I don't know any of this stuff. So I have to have some grace for this individual. Just like uh, Paul says, look, I was the worst of all sinners, but— Jesus showed me grace. He showed me mercy. And I think we have to have that attitude with people. We ought not expect them to agree with us all the time. And if we have that attitude, then we can say, okay, I can see your point, but let me let me express to you what I think is the truth.
1: Well, in that context, what it's describing is a humility. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's what's lacking at times with us, is because we're in this zero-sum game, which I think— you know, again, is a very humanistic orientation that you must lose so I can win. And right. Jesus comes in and says, let me lose so you can win. That's you know, right. It's very, right. very upside down. <laughs> uh-huh. I think even our natural mind, our, our fleshly minds, can't even comprehend what's actually that transaction. Back to mm. your opening illustration, we, we can't even believe it. Maybe that's at some of the root of that person saying, even if Christianity were true... I say no, because I just can't even still believe it, that someone's going to die for me.
0: And and I'd rather make my own choices in this life. That's really the issue. Yeah, it's being personal in control. Autonomy. It's personal autonomy. I want to do what I want to do, and I want to do it with whom I want to do it. Nobody can tell me that that's wrong. Now, by the way, that's a moral position when somebody says that. And the question is, by what moral standard are you saying that's the right way, that you have a right to do X, Y, and Z? If there's no God, you don't have any rights. That's the problem. Everything's just a matter of opinion. You think you have a right to sleep with whomever you want to or say whatever you want to.
1: Not if there's no God. That's just your opinion. Oh yeah. And we I want to get deeper into that, but before we move away from this idea of respect, I wanna I want to touch on a scripture. And the thing about this, you know, and you know this, being an apologist, you can pull a scripture out of context and make it say anything you want it to say. And I I point to the scripture in 2 Timothy 2, uh, right at the end of that chapter, because it, it is generally the theme that you find in scripture, but it's also the marching orders for us. Let me just read it quickly. It says, so flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. Mm. It doesn't say mm. some people. It says everyone. Right. That's right. And then it goes on to say, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him, to do his will. I Mm. mean, wow, is that not a job Mm. description for the Christian?
0: That's it right there. And the gentleness and respect thing is hard for me, Jim, because I'm originally from New Jersey. (laughs) It doesn't flow naturally for you. No, no, no. We want to fight all the time, right? But no, we have to take a step back
1: and, and think to ourselves, why should I expect this person to agree with me? Can I, let me ask you a question that could be a little sensitive. I mean, in that context, you know, we're not perfected in this life. We're moving toward it. Hopefully, as we get older, like you said, talking to a 20 year old on a college campus is different from when you're talking to a 60, 70 year old. Hopefully, we have a little more maturity by the time six decades have been lived. But in that context, it is amazing how we continue to fall into our sin nature. And and we don't fight the spiritual battle with the tools God has given us. Let me give you an example. I had lunch with David Horowitz, who's a secular Jew. He's right. become he was a lefty, but he's become very conservative, especially in the area of education, big believer in voucher programs for for schools, et cetera. And we we're having lunch. He goes, Jim, don't you know? you know, you Christians, you're in an alley fight, and the enemy, these guys have switchblades, they're trying to kill you. In fact, he wrote a book, How the Left is Trying to Kill Christianity in America. So he's well-informed. I said, David, no, we get it. You know, we're not stupid Christians. We just, you know, our weapons of warfare are love, joy, peace, goodness, mercy, kindness. And he goes, mm-hmm. wow, those are really bad weapons.
0: <laughs> and it, it gave me a taste. depends on what your end game, is. Yeah. yeah, it gave me
1: a taste of what Jesus must have encountered when he was trying huh. to, to Tell you know his contemporaries, right. hey, here's the here's the weapons of our warfare. And I'm sure just like David Horowitz, they're like, Wow, Lord, those are really bad weapons. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Well,
0: we got prayer too, and we do have the word of God, which is what Jesus used against Satan, right? Yes. So we we have those. We have the ability to reason. In fact, you know, we're 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 not just defending Christianity now, Jim. We're defending reason itself. Huh. When you have people out there who don't know what a man or a woman is, uh, we're defending reason itself, Jim.
1: Yeah, and, and let's move into that now because I think that is a great place to go. The the LGBT movement, particularly. Let me give you some oxymoronic observations right now that are true in the culture. And, you know, you look at this whole situation in Israel and and Gaza and you see U.S. college campuses that you're visiting and talking Mm. to students and debating with them. You have LGBT students for Hamas. Mm. People, they don't even, I think, understand what that means. I mean, if you were in Gaza or Iran they would be killing you as an LGBT person. Right. I mean, they don't tolerate sexuality outside of male and female, and it's bizarre that we have lost critical thinking skills that they don't even understand that, seemingly. Well, well, they've they've lost it to critical
0: theory, Jim, which says there's always an oppressor and oppressed group, and it doesn't matter uh, what the oppressed group has done or is doing. They always have to be right that's why you have lgbtq people not all of them many of them are right are reasonable enough to say that but that's they why you have people saying oh the people in gaza they must be oppressed so they're in, they're right no matter the fact that that they're committing atrocities against women and children beheading people raping people desecrating them burning babies it doesn't matter because anybody who is considered oppressed by their definition of oppressed has to be in the right.
1: Well, and that's the place where I believe when you don't have a core compass, the Scripture, right. uh, it starts to implode on itself like that, yes. as an example. Yes. Right. If oppression is our only denominator, you end up in some weird bedfellows. Uh, that's right. You know, it, it, it's inconsistent. And therefore, you have inconsistencies in your moral compass. Yes, totally.
0: And even without the scriptures, just with the moral law written on our hearts, as Paul says in Romans chapter two, the Gentiles and Abdel have the law written on their hearts. That gets distorted when you start putting ideology above your own conscience, and that's what's going on with critical theory.
1: Let me let me ask you if this has ever popped up for you. I was thinking about this a few years ago. I've never really expressed it publicly. But in talking with non believers, which I try to do, and I think every believer should make a habit course. of talking to mm-hmm. non believers, because if you're just living in the bubble, you become very dull as a sword. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes, and Good. so well put. You know, I was talking I was talking to this Darwinist and I was saying, let me let me make this assumption. I will assume the Darwinian position. Let's forget religion for a minute, a commitment to Christ. So if I have the Darwinian uh, mindset and I'm looking at the LGBT issue, for example, would it be fair to say that as a heterosexual male that it would be appropriate for me in order to allow this species to survive that I would be fighting tooth and nail against the homosexual community because it's a threat to the preservation and procreation of the species. Mm. Is that a fair argument? And I remember him going, wow, I hadn't thought about it that way. (laughs) So, I mean, with either hat, the the Uh Christian hat, or the Darwin hat, when it comes to, really, to your point, God's nature, when when sexuality falls outside of God's nature, you got problems.
0: Yes, yes. And there isn't a lot of reason that makes those views coherent in fact for sake of argument think about the so-called lgbtq community right now uh jim if the t's get their way the l's the g's and the b's don't exist because the t's are saying there are no fixed genders well if there are no fixed genders there aren't any lesbian gay bisexual or for that matter heterosexual people because those identities or behaviors. Rely on fixed genders to even exist, right? They're so all wrong. A, that's right. Yeah, so there's there's a bit of a of a civil war within that community right now because the, the L's, the G's, and the B's are
1: going. Wait, if the T's are right, we're out of we don't exist, <laughs> right? And so, you see Martina mm-hmm. Navratilova at least yes. arguing some sensibility that the T's got it wrong. <laughs>
0: As and a, the feminists, yeah, the feminists the same way. That's why you have people who would probably be politically liberal overall, like J.K. Rowling, saying. Uh, you're erasing women, because if if there are no genders, there are no women. If there are no women, there aren't women's rights. And so she's standing against this horde of people who are claiming she's somehow a transphobe, whatever that means, even though these are people in her own books and movies. People that start her own movies are, are are against her, because the ideology is driving them rather than reason
1: and truth. Right, and I, I guess the uh, the deeper thing here fundamentally for us as Christians is you're looking at— descriptions of human sexuality you know that probably were pretty common in Rome and in Greece hmm. uh these were things that Paul spoke to that men laying with other men that that is not right uh he mm-hmm. in in Romans he talks about those who have become Christian that formerly were homosexual, so there's salvation opportunity. But uh, even in this uh, debate, and I'm sure you've caught up with some of this between Andy Stanley and Dr. Al Mohler, y- yes. you know the one. I know both of them. Uh, Dr. Mohler used to be on our board. I would never go toe to toe with Dr. Al Mohler theologically, <laughs> but I mean, so Andy talked about Jesus being circles. You know, that he's embracing of everybody. And to Al's credit, Al said, that's true. I will give Andy that point. Jesus wants you to come into the family of Christ. But once you're in the circles, then there are lines. (laughs) There's lines that Jesus draws. Just speak to that debate for a minute theologically. And I think it's, boy, you look at what's happening within the church. This is so critical. But yes. that that way of deducing that argument is so good, because it is this idea that God is love, we get that, Al Mohler is recognizing that, but once you're in the family of God, there are things that are expected of you in terms of how you behave. Yes, of course, and
0: full disclosure, I'm a friend of Andy, and I had a six-hour conversation with him about this a few months ago, and he's a friend of mine, but I disagree with him. I think what he's saying is wrong. It is true that, yes, Jesus wants everybody to love one another, but love doesn't mean approval. Love seeks what's best for the other person, and he appears to be going down a road, unfortunately, that is going to approve of behaviors that God does not want us to stay in. Yeah. As you you just put it, Jim— it says, that's what some of you were. And it wasn't just people engaged in same-sex relations, but it's people who were covetous, people who were thieves. adulters, All these other behaviors. <laughs> right. All of us.
1: You're right. And I, you know, yeah. when I've engaged in discussion with some of the, the LGBT people that I've had the privilege of meeting and talking to them about the Lord, you know, one thing they'll say to me, and this is really, this is a fair comment. They'll say, mm-hmm. you know, when we walk into your church, you know that we're gay. I'm holding mm-hmm. my partner's hand. You know, we're, right. we're obviously not one of you. But he said, what about a couple in your church where they divorce for unbiblical reasons? They just got tired of each other. And then they remarried people in the church and they come to church. Do you sort them out because they're actually committing adultery? We I went, be. Wow. Yeah, well, it's, but I would respond by saying just because we're
0: inconsistent in one area doesn't mean we ought to be inconsistent in another. Well, right? that's so
1: true. And I, yeah. you know, it, this gets me to the point that you made that I thought I had come up with this. I've been using this for two or three years. I didn't know you uh-huh. had already talked about it. But this idea that Christians are hypocrites, people will say that to me and I'll go, yeah, we are. Because we're yeah, not that's perfect. Right. <laughs> right. And well, it like, you know, takes the wind out of their sail, right? Yeah. And John Dixon,
0: who uh, teaches <laughs> now at Wheaton, has a great analogy. I don't know if you've heard of it. Uh, I always give him credit for it because it's wonderful. He says, uh, when somebody plays Beethoven poorly, who do you blame? Right. right. You don't blame <laughs> Beethoven, you blame the player. So when someone plays Jesus poorly, who do you blame? You don't blame Jesus. Look, just because I'm not true and beautiful doesn't mean Jesus isn't true and beautiful. Right. And Christianity is not Christians. Christianity is Jesus. So keep your eyes on Jesus. He's our Savior. And as you just put it, Jim, if we weren't hypocrites, we wouldn't need a Savior. Right. I mean, if we were perfect, right, like, like, what, what, we wouldn't need Jesus. Well, another I, I, great I, point I t- of logic. Yeah, I tell audiences this, and the, and, and they, they sometimes stop when I tell them. If they're Christian audiences, I said, do you realize that you can get to heaven by being good? You can. You just got to be perfect your whole life.
1: <laughs> too late for me, right? I'm not going to make it. How about you? And by the way, the God that knows everything knows that you will not live it perfectly. <laughs> that's right. That's right. he's and that's he's why a, he a, said a, Jesus. That's right. He's, he's already figured out I, I need help. That's why he came to save me. You know, Frank, before we move off of the topic of of sexual disorientation, if I could call it that. I hadn't heard of that, but that's a great way to describe it. Mm -hmm. Um, I've had the chance now to interview some of the detransitioners. And I think to your comment earlier, the transgender, gender dysphoric movement is really a wake-up call to everybody about what it means to be human. Forget That's what right. it means to be a woman, but what it means mm-hmm. to be human, that we're born with these innate attributes. You you either are male or you're female. And then from there, you may have gender dysphoria, which up until recently was seen as a psychological disorder. Now you have these political movements that are trying mm-hmm. to gain power through these circumstances, horrible circumstances that particularly young people find themselves in. And to that effect, with these detransitioners, what I have found is kind of this statement. I thought I was getting love and acceptance, to your point earlier, in this group. What I didn't realize and what no adult told me around me, either the school administrator, the teacher, my parents, whomever that I needed to mutilate my body to get that acceptance. There was nobody standing there saying, don't do that. If anything, just wait until you're an adult to make that decision. And that, to me, is profoundly impactful. That these are people that can't get a tattoo, can't drink a beer, can't buy cigarettes, but they could get sexual reassignment and make that decision for themselves at 12 13 14 year old how how insane is this culture and tragically very few pastors are talking about it because we need taboo. to talk
0: about it well we need to talk about it if we truly love people which is seeking what's best for them it's telling them the truth i just updated a book i written a number of years ago it's called correct not politically correct and this is about same sex marriage and transgenderism Can I just read a very brief quote from a lady that tried to transition from being a woman to being a man? Yes, Here's what she she said. Her name is uh, Scott Nugent now. She says this, Jim, and this is in the book, correct, not politically correct. She said, during my own transition, I had seven surgeries. I also had a massive pulmonary embolism, a helicopter flight ride, an emergency ambulance ride, a stress-induced heart attack, sepsis, a 17th month recurring infection due to using the wrong skin during a failed operation to give her a male organ 16 rounds of antibiotics three weeks of daily iv antibiotics the loss of all my hair only partially successful arm reconstructive surgery permanent lung and heart damage a cut bladder insomnia induced hallucinations oh and frequent loss of consciousness due to pain from the hair on the inside of my urethra All this led to a form of PTSD that made me a prisoner in my own apartment for a year. Between me and my insurance company, medical expenses exceeded $900,000. Wow. Jim, there's no protocol for this because it's impossible to change your biology. You can change your mind, but you can't change your biology, and yet— Politics is trying to tell people now the only solution is to try and change your body, which is medically impossible. So there's no protocol for sex change operations. This is the kind of horror that people go through trying to do
1: this. Frank, when you look at, and I keep my eye on what Europe has done, they tend to be ahead of the U.S. in many of these things. What I give them credit for, the way I understand it and read the articles coming out of the U.K., Finland, Sweden... Norway is that they have put the brakes on this because yes, they, they have they rightfully have said they see no clinical benefit from uh, treating gender dysphoria in minors with surgical change, hormone treatment. So now they've scaled it back. They are no longer doing it in many of the European countries, or if they're doing it, they're doing it in small almost just small uh, groups to uh, do clinical trials. And yet here in the U.S., now we go headlong into it. We don't look at the data. We don't reverse ourselves because we're, in my opinion, too arrogant in the science community. And it's being taken over by what I would call activist medical doctors who now are Mm -hmm. all about promoting a political perspective rather than a medical perspective. But how in science can you have these two very different viewpoints now between where Europe is at and where it's headed and where America is at and where it's headed? Yeah, because science doesn't say
0: anything. Scientists do. That's the problem. And you'll have some scientists who are buying the political line now that says this is good, right, and wholesome, and the rest of them are going, this is Frankenstein. Uh, And the other reason that they're shutting them down, in fact, the big gender clinic in the U.K. shut down, Jim, because as as you mentioned, they were five or 10 years ahead of us, Mm -hmm. which means that lawsuits are coming on those clinics from kids who were who were transitioned really without their informed consent because they were kids. Now they're adults and now they're going, what did you do to me? They're bringing lawsuits and the clinics are going, we're not going to be able to stay in business. That's why we're closing. So it's more financial, I think. Even to a certain extent than it is medical. They're just going, This
1: we're we're not gonna be able to survive the lawsuits that are coming down. And that clinic is Tavistock, if people want to look it up. In the UK, they had over a thousand lawsuits filed against them. And these were this was a hospital that was totally geared toward minor child gender transition. And yes. yeah, to your point, it's like they have shut it down. They have to. They're not gonna be able to make it financially, but also
0: medically, it's a disaster. Uh, there's no way you can change your biology. You can change your mind. I mean, Jim, the, the perfect uh, analog to this is anorexia. And this is what Dr. Paul McHugh at John Hopkins University has brought up, a psychiatrist. He said, you know, if someone's suffering from anorexia where, where they have a mismatch between their psychology and their biology, we don't tell them, you know, you're right, let me get you liposuction. We say, honey, your mind's playing tricks on you. We have to get you the proper psychiatric care to change your mind. Now, when it comes to sex, however, we reverse that. We say, Oh no, you yeah, you can change your body. You don't have to change your mind. I mean, Jim, if your daughter said she was a mermaid, would you take her off the coast and drop her in the ocean? Right. Of exactly. course you wouldn't. Yes. Right. You'd you'd say, dear, honey, honey, your mind's playing tricks on you. Let me get you the proper medical care, not do something
1: that's impossible and change your biology. Let's uh let's move into some other topics. Uh and again, I hope people aren't feeling uh the lack of Sincerity and how we're describing this. I mean, it, it it would be a brutal situation if I were in that community, of LGBT, and they they'd be saying, "Well, that's because you don't accept yourself." Or if my children were, but I, you know, on the one hand, there needs to be that Christian compassion. They probably would reject that and think, "I don't want your." Compassion. I want your acceptance, and we're saying we, we can't go that far. But let's put that aside. There's so many arguments that that uh, we could make in that regard. Let's move Jim, can to Can we
0: just yeah? Can we just piggyback on one thing you just said there? They're saying we don't want your compassion, right? right? But they don't accept our position on this either, right? They think we're wrong on this, right? Both sides are saying that the other side has it wrong the question isn't whether you're being tolerant or i'm being vice versa. the question is who has it right who is following the evidence where it leads both sides are intolerant of the other side's position and it might be the other side is sincere by saying we think your position is harmful well we're saying the same thing the only question is what is the right position
1: yeah, that's true. And to finish that thought, there's where we have a bedrock of millennia on mm-hmm. our side. That if you look mm-hmm. at it, the scripture itself, which we believe obviously is God breathed. You want a mm-hmm. manual to life, it's called the scripture. And right. and you can you can find that truth. Now they reject that. I understand that. But you know, again, that's our basis of argument, is what has God said about this subject.
0: But if they reject it, then they have no basis for rights at all. Yeah. Because if there's no God, there are no rights.
1: Well, and that leads right to, to the next topic. Because I wanted to ask you about this. That was beautifully done, <laughs> the the segue. Because <laughs> you have talked about and written about this this contradiction between Mother Teresa and Hitler. Mm-hmm. And I want to uh, unpack that a bit, because it's a great analogy, again, of inconsistency. So describe mm-hmm. describe that kind of paradox between Mother Teresa and Hitler?
0: Well, we have a, in the book, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist, we're giving the argument that Christianity is true from the ground up, that the Bible's true. And one of the chapters is titled Mother Teresa versus Hitler. And the question is, who's right and who's wrong? And the answer is, you don't know unless you have a standard outside of both of them. Uh, because Mother Teresa wasn't the standard. Hitler wasn't the standard. There must be a standard beyond both of them by which we judge both of them. And we say Mother Teresa, who served the poor in Calcutta most of her life, was closer to the standard of goodness or righteousness than was the murderous dictator Hitler. If there is no standard beyond Mother Teresa and Hitler that they are both obligated to obey— then all we can say is Mother Teresa and Hitler were different. We can't say one is better or worse than the other because we have no standard by which to judge either of them other than our own preferences. So there must be a standard beyond, and this goes back to C.S. Lewis's argument where he writes in uh, Mere Christianity, he says, if you're saying that the allies are right and the Nazis are wrong, you're comparing them both to a standard beyond either of them beyond the allies and beyond the nazis and that standard is what we mean by god's nature if god doesn't exist the nazis and the allies are just different they're not better or worse
1: well and frank i think that illuminates where we're at today when you uh over generations when you lose that standard because Mm -hmm. we're not teaching it and in fact we're teaching it in a headwind. Because you people, meaning us, the Christians, are intolerant and backwoodsy and, you know, you're ancient. But when
0: you say that, Jim... When they say that, they're they're implying a standard. right? They're, they're saying that you're somehow wrong, Jim Daly, focus on the family guy, because you're intolerant, you're backwoodsy. Compared to what standard? Right. What are they using to
1: say you're wrong? See, that's the problem. They don't have a standard other than their own preference. Well, and that's it. That's what it gets yeah. down to is their preference. I think that came out, you were debating a Jewish atheist named David Silverman, and he, yes. he admitted something pretty mind-blowing to you. What was it?
0: David Silverman at the time was president of the American Atheists, and during our debate on whether or not God exists, I asked him, uh, I said, if there is no God, David, then the Holocaust wasn't really wrong. And him being Jewish, even though he was an atheist, tried to say, well, he tried to avoid the implication, and I kept pressing him on it. I kept pressing him. He said, David, if there's no God, the Holocaust wasn't wrong. You know what he finally said? He said, you know what, Frank, you're right. The Holocaust wasn't really wrong. And I said to him, David, if your worldview is telling you that the Holocaust wasn't really wrong, you have the wrong worldview. <laughs> Welcome to theism. You right? know it's wrong. In fact, you know with more certainty that killing innocent people is wrong than you know that atheism's true. So why would you side with atheism? You already have an intuitive sense that murdering innocent people is wrong. If that's the case, atheism's false. So why would you be an atheist? Did he respond? He, You know, they they just try and avoid it. He didn't—I yeah. mean, you can see the debate on our YouTube channel, the cross examine YouTube channel. He would just assume his own standard. That's why I wrote a book called Stealing from God, Why Atheists Need God to Make Their Case. He was in the same debate, <laughs> Jim. You know what he was saying? He was saying it was wrong— to not put kids with a homosexual couple, you know, if they they need to be adopted. Right. And So I said to him, why would that be wrong? What standard do you have to call that wrong? And he 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 just he couldn't come up with a standard. But that's his position. On one hand, he's trying to say it's wrong
1: to put kids or not put kids with a homosexual couple. But the Holocaust isn't wrong. You know, in that context, that reminds me, yeah, that, I mean, you're right. It's these inconsistencies that if you try to pin them down, they struggle. Katie Faust has become quite a voice for children. She has an organization called Them yes. Before Us, meaning children yes. before adults. That's and right. she, her mom and dad divorced when she was 10. Her mom uh, ended up with a female partner. And she would say, I love my mom, and I loved her partner. Yes. And her whole point, which I think is so beautifully expressed, is that adults, we have changed because of the erosion of time and values in our country as a Judeo-Christian country. We have learned that children need to sacrifice themselves for adults rather than adults the way it used to be, adults sacrificing for their children. And that is such a profound statement, and it, mm. it rings through the classroom of schools all around the country when it, we talk about sexuality or selfishness or the way kids are being raised today. It's back to sacrifice your children for your happiness and your mm. joy. If you mm. don't want that child in your womb, kill it. If mm. you have that child but don't want to be a parent of it, ignore it. Let the school do it. I mean, there's just so many uh, cultural messages today that says, yeah, sacrifice your kids for your peace and your joy and your happiness. How wrong is that? Well, Jesus said exactly the opposite.
0: If anyone causes any of these little ones to stumble, it'd be better to have a millstone hung around his neck and thrown in the depths of the sea. He also said, I give you one new command, love one another as I have loved you. And so we mentioned earlier, that's sacrifice. If you love somebody, you will sacrifice for them, not demand sacrifice of them.
1: Yeah, it is so true. And it's just a place to peer in. And, Mm -hmm. you know, if you want to spend time thinking about these things, powerful arguments. Again, uh, her name is Katie Faust. I know you know her. Mm -hmm. But look her up. She's uh, got some incredible content. Just a great communicator about this obvious contradiction within the culture. Uh, Frank, let me move into the cultural idea of following your heart and Mm. the problem that that creates. But Mm. again, we've touched on this, but I want you to hit it directly, how the culture and individuals within the culture, movements, when they follow their heart, they end up in a dead end. Yeah, they totally do. There are
0: three reasons, probably more than this, but I'm just going to give three quick reasons why following your heart without moral restraint is not a good idea. Number one, your heart is deceitful and wicked, as Jeremiah points out, and we know it intuitively. I always ask people, if you were to wake up one morning and a sign was attached to your head that transmitted every thought across your forehead in big LED letters and you couldn't turn the sign off and you couldn't cover it, no matter where you went, everyone could read every thought you had, would you leave your bathroom? <laughs> I wouldn't right? of course not because our hearts yeah. are selfish and egotistical and we're judging people all the time. we're bent toward evil. it's easy to be bad it's hard to be good you know anyone that's brought up a two-year-old knows the depravity of human beings yeah. right we're bent toward evil we want what we want when we want it. So number one the first reason following your heart is not a good idea is our hearts are deceitful wicked and very selfish. The second reason is our hearts are contradictory. Um, you can't always follow your heart. For example, you might be someone who uh, wants to get married and have a family. But at the same time, you still want to play the field. I don't know about you, Jim, but when I got married, it put a big damper on my dating life. Yeah, I couldn't follow <laughs> both hearts, right? I had I think to that's follow whole one or thing. the other. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> right. I mean, you've got to make a choice. Yeah. You can't f- consistently follow your heart because it-, it goes in different directions at different times. So... Uh, it's deceitful, the second it's conflicting, and thirdly, and probably most importantly to young people, your heart is changing. Your heart's changing all the time. You're not the same person you were when you were 10, 15, 20, 25. When you're young, your heart changes dramatically in short periods of time. So it makes no sense to make a lifelong decision to sterilize yourself when you're 15 because you don't think you want kids and you think you're the other gender when you know what the data shows, Jim, that 80% of kids who have so-called gender dysphoria grow out of it by the time they're 18. Why? Because their heart changes. Their yeah. heart doesn't
1: stay the same. In that context, just to mm-hmm. put an exclamation point on it, that's what makes it, to me, such an immoral act that we're, you know, we contain children from making decisions on yes. very less horrific things like, you know, yes. buying a pack of cigarettes. I guess, yeah, right. that can create lung cancer, but think about it for a minute. But they could do, they can make a decision to change their gender, To t- well, to attempt to change their gender, but to take medication, to get a double mastectomy, a hysterectomy at 14, 15 years old with the support of school administrators, teachers, mm. counselors, Maybe in some cases, parents not even realizing what's happening, or worse, people don't even believe this, that uh, like family services of given states are taking these kids out of their biological parents' home because they're not gender-affirming. Wow.
0: Actually, that's been a federal mandate, too. President Biden, on March 30th, 2022, through his Health and Human Services Division, basically said the same thing, Jim. That if you
1: don't affirm your kid in gender affirming care, we may come to take that child from you. So, think about I mean, the power of the US government being on a little rooftop of this home and this mm-hmm. little Christian family. They're trying to do the right thing, but this child goes off to school. They have every adult in their life outside of their parents at school talking about how important it is for them to live what they believe they are, not what they biologically are. And you've got this, I mean, this whirlwind against you. And they're trying to fight this. I mean, it, it it feels overwhelming, and my heart goes out to those families. And uh, that's
0: why we that's why we need to be engaged. And in fact, when kids are being taken from their families and transitioned, uh, we we have to speak up against this. Yeah, I, I I I kind of feel like right now the church is sort of like. Uh, the the churches in Germany who just sang their hymns louder as the train carrying Jews to Auschwitz was passing by.
1: Yeah, but it's especially know. in this area of human sexuality, it is the Trojan horse that's making its way into Christian homes and it wreaking is. disaster uh, over it all. Uh, Frank, let me let me speak to the nation a bit. We get you know we get knotted up a bit about what was, and the Founding Fathers, and their Mm -hmm. hypocrisy, and we get that, Mm -hmm. we understand that. They, too, were imperfect people, but they worked very hard. I'm always impressed by their background educationally. You know, I've looked at some of those fourth-grade primers, which would be beyond master degree uh, (laughs) training in the U.S. today. I mean, speaking Greek and Latin by fourth and fifth grade, these were not dumb people, these were very highly educated, knowledgeable human beings. But they crafted this document, uh, or multiple documents in the US, to try to experiment to bring a government type to fruition that recognized the sin nature of humanity and balanced it against, in many direct cases, against the Bible, you know, that they would create a biblical structure. Uh, That's where we get three areas of government. That's checks and balances. That power, unbridled power in any one branch of government is not good for humanity. And then that whole recognition of inalienable rights and the idea that government does not give us the right to be human. God gives us that right. Uh, Speak to those lagging now critically important understandings of how human beings interact and how government should deliver certain things that now it's struggling to deliver
0: well that's why jefferson didn't want a completely religious government that would result in religious intoleration he didn't want the church of england but he also didn't want a government that didn't ground its rights in god so he picked the the perfect middle alternative a government built on natural law the author of natural law is God himself, it comes from his nature, the same God that gave us the Bible. But he didn't say you had to be a Christian or you had to be a believer to have these rights. He said, these rights come from God, but you don't need to be a believer to actually have these rights. And you don't need to be a member of any church in order to have these rights. However, our government is founded on theism. Sorry, that's just the way it is. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men were created and endowed by their government. No, endowed by their creator... With certain unalienable rights, among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and governments instituted among men to secure these rights. In other words, government doesn't give you rights. Government's supposed to secure your rights, which aligns with Romans 13, where Paul says the ruler does not bear the sword for nothing. He's to protect innocent people from evil. Governments are put in place to protect innocent people from evil, to protect those rights tragically, some governments, including our own now, are not protecting innocent people from evil. They have begun to do evil themselves. Yeah, that's, And that's the problem. You know, you look that's at that, going on.
1: so many people will ask, what's the role of government from a biblical standpoint? It's right there. It says to restrain evil. That's right, yeah. That is the role
0: of government. And in our country, we've been given the privilege of being the government. So if we have a problem with the government, it's our fault. Yeah. It's the church's fault because we haven't been engaged enough. Yeah, And I, I know that some pastors out there say, look, I just preach the gospel. I don't get involved in politics, to which I tell them, if you don't think uh, politics are important, you don't think the gospel is important. Why? Because your ability to preach and live the gospel is dependent on the laws that are made in Washington and your state and local governments. You don't have the right to preach the gospel if the government takes it away from you. I mean, practically, you don't have it. You'd still have it. But if they were to come in and make this North Korea, you couldn't preach
1: the gospel. Frank, let me let me ask you this, because again, this is really critically important for all of us. Mm-hmm. I, I think there is a distinction. What I'm concerned about at times, because of the dosage that we get on cable mm-hmm. news, and I watch it just like everybody else, mm-hmm. but the dosage is so high now that we, we can foment anger toward people that disagree with us toward political figures that we don't believe are acting in those best interests. So I, I think the question I want you to speak to is, how do we keep in balance this idea of spiritual call and vocation, and then where we place that political influence that we need to have, especially in a democracy, but how do we not allow it to control our attitudes, our speech. I mean, that's not what Jesus said. He didn't say, you know, when you get to the RNC or the DNC, here's mm-hmm. what you need to say. Mm. So so i I I personally will often struggle with that throughout the day, about how do I keep my spiritual antenna primed and not succumb to the bitter battles of partisan politics.
0: I think it goes back to what you read earlier
1: in Second Timothy
0: two. That same sort of behavior n- we need to bring to the political realm. Yes, it, 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 but we still need to be engaged in the political realm Correct. because if we're not then the godly people, if the godly people are not engaged, then the institution goes godless. But in that context,
1: in that context, is it because it's a heavy load? I mean, I'm thinking of the pastor example you just gave. You know, I really don't want to get involved in that. I'm going to preach the word. I'm going to speak to my congregants, and they need to carry that message out. Or is it being a student of the culture as a Christian, whether you're a pastor or not, we're all a witness of our faith to the world. Mm. To do the work. I mean, you know apologetics. You have Mm -hmm. gone toe-to-toe with Christopher Hitchens. And, you know, the normal average person is going, yeah, I, I didn't get a degree in this. I don't do this every day. How do we equip ourselves adequately to represent the Lord in those arenas with our friends saying, boy, we need to be engaged in this democracy. How do we encourage people and pastors and leaders to say, "It's not abortion is not political, everybody. It's moral.
0: Yes. And, and well, that's what politics is. It's putting morality into code. And that's unfortunately, immorality is often put into code. Well, there's a statement. That's why- yeah, that's why Dr. Geiser and I years ago wrote a book called Legislating Morality. You always hear you can't legislate morality. The truth is that's all you can legislate. That's what all laws do. Yeah. They legislate a moral position. You right. can't think do of a this, law that Do this, don't do that. Yeah, yeah. Now, tragically, some of our laws are legislating an immoral position, such as you can kill your child in the womb, such as we're going to come to your, your house and take your child away from you if you don't affirm the gender they're in so, or the gender that they think they are. So there are immoral laws, and that's why Christians have to be engaged. But we have to be engaged with the kind of attitude you mentioned earlier from 2 Timothy 2, Jim. Yeah, Uh, We have to be engaged everywhere. And a a question I like to ask people is, what area of your life is not an area that Jesus reigns over? It should be every area of your life, not just in Sunday morning, but in your family— Uh, at your job, when you go to the voting booth, or maybe you run yourself or uh, anywhere. You're supposed to be a Christian 24-7. And if we're truly going to love our neighbor, and we all agree we ought to love our neighbor, one way we love our neighbor is to make sure that laws are put in place that protect them from evil. And that's what we do in the political world. How do you love people politically? You put laws in place that help people Uh, be protected from evil. This is why Jesus went after the politicians of his day, who were the Pharisees. They were on the Sanhedrin, and he says to them in Matthew 23, 23, you're neglecting the weightier matters of the law. You're tithing your spices, and yet you're you're ignoring justice, faithfulness, and, and righteousness. I can't remember the exact words he used, but something to that effect. And in our country, we're doing the same thing. Jim, we're telling people what light bulbs they can and can't use, what stoves they can and can't use, what cars they can and can't drive, but we won't tell them, don't murder your children. We won't tell them, don't uh, uh, try and mutilate your children. We are majoring in the minors. We're neglecting the weightier matters of the law. And that's why Jesus was scolding the politicians of his day. So we have to have the attitude you mentioned earlier, but apply it to the political realm.
1: Frank, that is that is eloquent. That is well said. I don't want to end on any, any other note. There's other stuff we could cover, but uh, I just feel like you've hit the nail on the head and, and really brought great light to it today. I hope people will listen and share this with friends, make it a topic of discussion. If you're in a small group, why not play this and then talk about it? Uh, it, it? I just so appreciate the freshness of what you're saying, what you're thinking about. Of course, a lot of this is built off your book, Stealing from God, Why Atheists Need God to Make Their Case. I love that. We probably all have family members. I have had family members that live that title. And uh, you know, for, for people that don't believe in God, they spend a lot of time telling you why your God is not a good God. <laughs> you know? mm, mm, and that's in essence, what you've captured there. Thanks for being with us, Frank. So, so good. I hope we can do this again on different elements of the culture. We'll have you back and expand this a little bit. I I just so appreciate the way you think, the light that you put to it, and the challenge for all of us to live it well so that we can serve the Lord in this generation, in this moment. You know, Jesus didn't come into a perfect situation with the Roman Empire Mm -mm. on Israel's throat, and uh, so you know it's not like he didn't live in it. He's living, and he lived in some things that were very similar to what's going on today for us. So be of good cheer, fear not. Well, thank you for the work you're doing at Focus on the
0: Family. You guys have been a beacon for truth for decades, Jim. Thank you for that.
1: Well, I appreciate it, Frank. God bless you. God bless you. I received so much out of that conversation with Frank, and I hope you'll be able to share something you learned with a friend or a family member. Uh, Talking to unbelievers can be intimidating because their arguments can be difficult to respond to and typically emotional. But Frank does such a good job providing very clear and respectful responses so you can feel equipped and confident to have those conversations. I highly suggest you get a copy of Frank's excellent book, Stealing from God, Why Atheists Need God to Make Their Case, which is full of evidence for God, which will build your faith. The book will help you uh, be prepared to give an answer when people ask you why you believe what you believe, just like the Scripture says in 1 Peter 3.15. We had a listener comment on a recent episode, and we were so encouraged. She said, amazing, insightful, practical tools to apply in real life. I like that the episodes are long, so it's a deeper dive into every topic. Thank you for this life-changing podcast. God bless. Wow. Thank you to that listener for... uh, Just absorbing what we're trying to do here, which is to equip you to speak to those around you about the culture, about God, about the evidence for God, and doing it in a way that really reflects God's heart. Uh, I hope you'll support Refocus. We wouldn't be able to make this podcast without your help financially. So let us know first how the podcast has blessed you. And then if you can make a gift to help bless others. When you make a gift of any amount, we'll send you uh, one of the two books we covered today from Frank, Stealing from God, as our way of saying thank you. The link is in the show notes. Okay, for the inbox segment, here's a voicemail from Eric. Hey, Jim. I have this friend who I've known since we were kids. Uh, He's an engineer, and he says he
0: doesn't believe in God, and he thinks that the Bible is an ancient myth. I don't know how to talk to him about it because he's pretty smart and always turns into an argument. But I do want him to experience Christ's love. How can I approach him
1: on this matter and talk to him about it? Eric, let me say this. One thing is God gives us each temperaments and personalities, I think, for his uh, good pleasure to work through us, especially those of us that are committed to him. So I often uh, jokingly refer to accountants and engineers, and I get so much... Uh, you know, uh, response when I do that. So I don't want to be pejorative or negative here. Engineers are wired to uh, see the things that are right in front of them. They want factual data. They need to make decisions based on what they can see, feel, and touch. And I respect that. That's why we have bridges that don't fall down, buildings that don't fall down, because wonderful engineers are wired that way. When it comes to faith issues, though, these are things that are beyond the physical universe, things that are hard for them generally to accept because they can't see it and prove it. But that's what faith is about one of the great books and authors that I've encountered is John Burke who was an engineer he was agnostic maybe even atheist and he wrote a wonderful book where he uh, went and collected all the near-death experiences that he could and kind of followed up on his deceased father's research in that area it is a powerful book it led him to Christ as he was doing the research he went from agnostic engineer to believer and I think he's probably one of the foremost people that could help you with insights on how to reach him. You can get that resource from Focus on the Family, uh, and it's called Imagine Heaven. And uh, also, I'm sure John has other things on YouTube you can listen to. Uh, thank you for your question, Eric. And because of that, uh, the fact that you sent a question, I want to send you a copy of my book, Refocus, Living a Life That Reflects God's Heart, as my way of saying thank you for responding. If you have a question for me, please send me a voicemail, just like Eric did. You can click on the uh, show notes below and leave that voicemail. I want to hear about what you're experiencing in the culture and the questions you've been thinking about. It helps us to frame future programs. Thanks for listening to Refocus with Jim Daly. Please share this with your friends and like, listen, and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. On the next episode, a Refocus, author and speaker, Ray Comfort, will encourage you to boldly share the gospel with a world that desperately needs Christ.
0: But we have found everlasting life in Christ, absolutely, 100%. And we know that if the world knew what we had, they'd say, please, please tell me the answer to death. Tell me how I can find everlasting life. But they don't know. And that's why we
1: must be bold. That's coming up on Monday, February 26th on the next Refocus with Jim Daly. God wants true disciples, ones that think like Him, talk like Him, walk like Him. Disciples that bring shalom to the chaos of this world. Pursue that path with the RVL Discipleship series. Bible scholar Ray Vanderlaan will give you the tools to understand the Bible more deeply and inspire you to be a passionate follower of Christ. Watch the first episode at rvldiscipleship.com.